All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's really good to see everybody. I want to thank you all for being here. We're getting the build up for Christmas and we're getting ready to start celebrating and uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to be here. I've missed you, God. I look forward to seeing you all every week as we, we discuss together. And so for the last several weeks, um, about eight or nine weeks, if you really want to know the truth about it, we were discussing the word of God as the foundation of what we believe as Baptists. That the Word of God is our foundation. So, I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to pray to open the class up, and then I'm going to get you to answer the question for me. Okay? So, the question I would have is this. The creedal statement that we're studying, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, starts with the Word of God. And then the next thing that we talk about is God and the Trinity. All right, so the question I have for you is, God is our creator. Why isn't he the first chapter in the creedal statement? Okay, so I want you to think about that and we'll go ahead and pray and get going. Okay, Father, thank you so much for this time that you have given us together. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and him coming and dying to save us. Um, Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit so that we can know you and love you and grow in our wisdom and understanding of who you are. And so that we can be conformed to your image. And so you know every man and woman here today, um, as we seek to know you more through your word, be with us now in this time of study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the question was, the, the, the confession starts with the word of God. And then we, now for, for a while, we're going to be talking about God and the Trinity. Why would they not just start with God and the Trinity and then go to the Bible? Why? why because God is our creator. Like he's... He's the most important thing, right? Yes. Well, why is it do you think that the statement started with the Word of God and then goes to God and the Trinity? Why would that be? Because the Trinity didn't come until Jesus was born. Or maybe, I mean, he was he was there during the create, creation. Mm-hmm. But him and the Holy Spirit was brought up. Um, the Trinitarian nature of God is revealed in the incarnation of Christ. There's no doubt about that. Right. right. And we also saw it, see the Spirit, hover, the Spirit is the one that implanted Jesus in Mary, right? We, we see that. Um, but there's another reason a little deeper than that, uh, a little back of that. Can anybody think about that? Why is it that the creedal statement would start by talking about the Word of God and then go into God and the Trinity? Why didn't it start with God and the Trinity and then talk about the Bible? Good. The only way that we can know God in an intimate setting is through the Word of God. So how am I going to know what the Trinity is? How am I going to know what the Holy Spirit is? How am I going to know who the Father is and who the Son is without Him telling me? So in our old in our lessons that we've done in the last few weeks, we learned that God does speak to us through general revelation, but that it is through the specific revelation of His Word that we know Him and can understand Him. And we're going to learn today that God is incomprehensible. Like, you know, even his word, even the scriptures talking to us is him using baby talk to help us to know the unknowable. Like he, he uh, in the same way that Jesus uh, humbled himself and clothed himself in humanity to come among us to save us and so that we could know him, God the Father basically has to bring himself down to a level that we can understand. You see how that works? So um, let me pass it. I'm going to pass it out to you if I get. Uh, 
Oh, Wayne, if you can uh, pass those out for us. That's our lesson for today. And while he's passing that out, I want to remind you of the, uh, uh, the couple of statements in our bulletin from this week. Um, we, we'll read the, uh, the paragraph one here in just a minute. But if you look on the back page of our bulletin, the question is, uh, the question in the Baptist Catechism is, what do the scriptures principally teach? What do the scriptures principally teach? And this is why we brought up that question at the beginning. Look what it says. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So what is it that the scriptures basically teach? They teach us who God is and what he requires of us. Yes. So the purpose of that, the scriptures being the first uh chapter in the confession is because it's through the word of God that we know God and know what is required of us. So now what we're going to do is we're going to use that same creedal statement and we're going to point, use it to point us to the scriptures so that we can know who God is. See how that works? Okay. So our base uh, verse of scripture that we're going to use today, our basic jumping off point is going to be something known as the Shema or the Shema, right? And that word in Hebrew, I do not know Hebrew. I'm just, I just looked this up. But uh, the word Shema means hear or listen. And so the, so the Shema is a prayer that every Jew is required to pray every morning and every evening. Yeah. And Moses taught it to the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy. And the setting for that prayer and him teaching that prayer was the first generation in the wilderness didn't do so good, did they not? What did they do? They failed and they rebelled and they died in the wilderness. So now Moses is teaching the children of Israel that they are fixing to go and step into the promised land. And he's teaching them this prayer as a way to remind them of who God is. And so the word Shema means hear. And so every morning they would pray this. Hear, O Israel. So it's in Deuteronomy um, 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. And this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. Now, the beauty of that is is that God is a monotheistic God, is he not? He's one God. There's not three gods. There's one God. And as we get into our lessons in chapter 2 of this confession, we're going to get into the Trinity and try to... Uh, figure out what the Trinity actually is, because the reality is that a Jehovah Witness or uh, a Mormon, a uh, Muslim, uh, uh, or a Unitarian would be happy to quote Deuteronomy six, four, and five to you and say, "The Lord our God is one God." Yes. Right. Every every Muslim in the world would give you a thumbs up. He's one. But the moment that you bring three into the discussion, you lose, you lose the Jehovah Witnesses, and you lose the Unitarians, and you lose the Muslim. You see how that works? So, uh, as Angie brought up, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God is beginning to open our eyes to the reality that God is one being, 
but he's three persons. Now, we're not going to get into the Trinity today, but I will start by saying this. If you have that, do we have any left over? Okay, I'll start by saying this. Let's look at that first opening paragraph. It says, the goal of this chapter is to remind the church of the majesty and the holiness of God. The distinction between the creator and his creation must be taught and observed. Chapter 2 is divided into three paragraphs. So over the lessons for the next few weeks, probably a month and a half or so or better, we're going to talk about God's attributes, God's relations, and then we'll talk about the Trinity. So the goal of this chapter is to remind the church of the majesty and the holiness of God. There's a book by a guy named R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. It is a fantastic read if you ever get a chance to read it. It's very short and it's a good read. It's called The Holiness of God. And the point that Sproul is making in this book is, is that in our churches today, we've lost that awe. When you go into like the... Catholic Church downtown in, in Savannah, you go into uh, St. Peter's Basilica, or you go into one of the old churches, when you walk in, the ceilings are really high, and everybody gets really quiet. Even kids, like, without even being told, it's just like, ooh, there's something different about this place. And one of the things that we in our modern churches have lost with carpet and nice soft seats and air conditioning and these shortened ceilings... We've made the churches a lot like our workplaces or like our schools or like the, the rest of the world. And so we lose that awe when we, we come into his presence. Now, it's not just to have to do with the building. It actually has to do with our hearts. You remember as kids, you would have got a beaten if you had been running around on the pulpit when you was a kid, would you not? Like we've lost that sense of this sanctuary is a special place. It's a place where the people of God come and worship a holy, holy, holy and righteous God. And we, we, uh, we focus more on the sensations and the feelings as opposed to the reality that we are stepping into the presence of a holy God. So one of the purposes of this chapter is for us to be reminded of the majesty and the holiness of God. Did you know that the Jewish people do not even say the name God? And when the scribes would write the scriptures out, when they would come to the word God, they would write the first letter and the last letter, and then they would break their pen and get a new pen. They thought, they, and rightly so, God's name is not something that should just roll off the tip of our tongue in common vernacular. Like when we tell jokes about St. Peter and we tell jokes about God and the devil and, and make, make light of things, we lessen the we don't lessen his majesty and holiness, but in our minds and in our hearts, we devalue who he really is. He's our creator, and he's the one that holds your very last, next and last breath in his hand. And we need to be aware of that. So this chapter is going to help us to see that. Now, that next uh, sentence there says the distinction between creator and his creation must be taught and observed. Almost every heresy that's in the church this president in the church comes from conflating the creation and the creator. How many of you have ever had somebody tell you, well, the Trinity is like water. He can be ice and he can be steam and he can be, uh, what's that, water, you see? Right. Or the Trinity is kind of like uh, Roy. He's a father and he's a son and he's a spirit. He has a spirit. 
So the Trinity is like, but the problem with that is a heresy known as modalism. And the term modalism means that God comes to us in different modes. He's the same God, but he comes in different modes. All right. And it's a heresy because what we're doing when I say that God is like Wayne or Roy, I'm bringing God down to the creation's level. Yes. The only one that has the right to do that is Jesus, who clothed himself in humanity and walked among us. But the moment that I begin to say God is like, I'm pulling him down from his holiness and his majesty and bringing him down to the common. And we have to be careful about it. Almost every heresy that is out there is blurring the distinction between the creator and the creation. You see how that works? We conflate it and make them the same thing. And if you've noticed, it, it, in our church's day, it says uh, that we need to teach this, that it needs to be observed, that God is majestic, he is majestic and holy. A lot of the attitude of the church today is that like God is like my teenage boyfriend, that he just wants to give me a big hug. <coughs> But you see, the reality is, is that God loves you and has a plan for your life is not going to do you any good on Judgment Day. God loves you and has a plan for your life is not going to do you any good on Judgment Day. What's going to do you good on Judgment Day is that God is a holy and a just God. Thankfully, he's a merciful God that sent his son to step in between me and he. And to intercede for me and to die and to take the wrath of his justice and and judgment that I deserve and put it on his son so that I can know his mercy and his love. And we never need to lose sight of the holiness of God. Okay, so um, again, we're going to see we're going to start today by talking about the attributes of God. And we'll probably take this week, maybe a little longer. I'm not sure. To get through that. But what do I mean when I say the attributes? What do I mean when I say the attributes of David? What are David's attributes? Yeah, who you are. That's exactly right. He's a kind fellow. And he always brings something interesting to the discussion when we have Bible study. Like, that's an attribute of David. He has a a mustache that looks a lot like the Monopoly guy to me. Right? All right? That's an attribute of David. Right, without the money. (laughs) So, we're going to talk about the attributes of God. What are the things that we can know? What does the Bible teach us about who God is and what he is? And that's where we get started today. So, let's read that paragraph, and then we're going to go back through and we will break it down. All right, so it's in the bulletin. It's also in your handout here. And this is what it says. We believe that the Lord our God is but one only living and true God. Who's, it's, it, y'all got it in your paragraph. What's the matter, is there a rat? No, it's a lizard. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh. All right. Kelly didn't want to scare nobody. Okay, we got a lizard in the house. They're fine, they eat flies. And there's actually a proverb that says that lizards live in king's palaces, right? So that's actually a good thing. All right. So the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence, there's a big fancy word, is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, 
whose essence, there's another big word, cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts or passions, who only have immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach into, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sin. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that is a mouthful, is it not? All right, so what we're going to do is really quickly we're going to go through, if you see the handout that I gave you, there's a bunch of passages of Scripture there. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to read them. And we're, gonna, and we're not going to, well, if you have anything that you would like to discuss about something, we read, please feel free to bring that up. But I just want to get through all of those references because, again, I, I have to overemphasize this to you. This creedal statement is not God-breathed. It is not the Word of God. It is a group of elders and teachers that God gifted the church with who came together and took the Bible and summarized some of the things that it was teaching so that we could have a brief and understandable statement of these biblical facts. So this is a whole mouthful about who God is. And what we're going to do is we're going to read these verses about things that describe where this is where these guys got their ideas from. They didn't just pull them out of thin air. They went to the scriptures to find what they taught. And then what we will do after that is we're going to see that we can take all of those attributes that he named that whole bunch of them. There's about 18, 16 to 18 of them there. And we're going to cut it down to eight, eight subsections. And we'll look at those as well. So really quickly, um, if some of you want to be looking these verses up. Um, I'm, I'll start with the first one. I'm going to look at that 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6. Okay, and if you, uh, all right, so if you, if you want to look one up, go right, feel free to go right ahead, and then I'll have you read it. Um, so the 1 Corinthians passage is, what do we say, 1 Corinthians 8? 1 Corinthians 8, 4. All right, it says this. Therefore... Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. You see what it did? It just said the Father and who? Jesus. And they are both what? Lord and all things exist through him. Right? God is one person. God is three beings. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the beings of God. The Father is not the Son. 
The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, you say, that's confusing, I don't understand that. Well, congratulations. If you could understand it, you would be God. All right? He is incomprehensible. It's not for us to peg him down and say, this is this. But we do know that the Bible teaches that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. God is one being. God is three persons. And so Paul is emphasizing that. Okay. The next verse that we're going to look at is the Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4, which is what we've already learned. What does it say? Oh, which one you got? Oh, you did excellent. Okay. The Deuteronomy 6, 4 passage is the Shema that we heard. All right. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So those first two passages we just read said that the Lord God is what? One. You see? So they wrote this statement, and they're making sure that we understand that the Bible teaches that God is one God. God is one God. All right? And then the Jeremiah 10.10 passage, does somebody have that? Okay, Angie got that? But the Lord is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. He is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. All right? And when we sing to Jesus, we sing, King of kings, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? So the Father is King and the Son is King. Okay, next passage we're looking at there is Isaiah 48, 12. And... uh, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my call. I am he. I am the first. I'm also the last. All right. I am he. I am the first and the last. That is Yahweh speaking to Israel. And then Jesus in the book of Revelation said what? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is applying that statement to himself in the Revelation. So, again, um, that Isaiah passage that we just looked at there. If you get a chance, if you go back and read through Isaiah chapter 40 through 48, it is called a battle of the gods. And it's God declaring that he is the only God and that all of the other gods out there in the world are all false gods. And it's him basically putting the beat down on all of the idolatry that Israel had fallen into and proving that he is the only God worth worshiping. So Isaiah 40, 48. These passages we're reading today, we're reading very quickly, and I've given you this piece of paper so that you can take this home and meditate on it on your own. Go back and look these things up again and make sure that you're grasping what we're talking about. Okay, next passage, who's got Exodus 3.14? All right, what does it say? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. Okay. So Moses is speaking, God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses said, who do I tell Pharaoh you are? And God said, what? I am that I am. What what, what is so important about that? Well, let's look at that John passage after that. Who's got that? John 4, 24 and 5. Okay. What does it say? For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship his spirit and truth. Okay. God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, that Exodus 3.14 passage, we're going to see in a few minutes in John 8, that Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is claiming to be the voice that was speaking to Moses through the bush. But what is the purpose and the point of the statement, I am? Why is that so important to say that God is the I am? Why is that important? 
the number one. He okay. He is number one. What is the point of saying I am? Okay, good. There's no other. That's true. But what if he said, I was the God of Abraham? Not only is it present tense, but it's the eternal sense. I was, I am, and I will be. So when he said, if he says, I will be the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, what he's saying is he's not that God yet. Or if he says, I was the God of Abraham, then he's no longer Abraham and Isaac's God. And he wasn't there, you see? But when he says, I am, he's put it in the, in the present tense. And that present tense emanates to eternity past and eternity future. And so if you notice, we'll look at the John 8 passage. We might not get to it today. We're probably going to not get to it today. But Jesus is staring down a group of the Pharisees who hate him. And he says, um, he, they said, how do you know uh, Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. He said, if you were of Abraham's seed, if you were Abraham's kids, you would do just like Abraham did, and you will believe me. And the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, how could you say he believed you? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham was 1,400 years ago. And Jesus replies to them and said, before Abraham was, I am. You see, he claims that name of the God that was speaking to Moses through the bush. And then the next statement says this, and then they picked up rocks to stone him. Why? Why did they pick up rocks to stone him? In their eyes, he was a heretic. What was he saying? I'm God. You see, so the Jehovah Witnesses will, uh, will tell you that, well, the before Abraham was I am statement is not him claiming to be God. But the reality is those Jews knew exactly what he was claiming because they grabbed rocks and were ready to kill him. So Jesus is claiming to be the voice speaking to Moses through the bush. Jesus is the lawgiver. He's the one that gave Moses the law on top of Mount Sinai. And again, they couldn't see that, could they? But because you have the Spirit of God living in you and because God has revealed himself to us through his word... We now understand the Spirit of God who hovered over Mary and placed the baby in Jesus. And we also understand the Son because the Word became flesh and walked among us. So now we can, hindsight's 2020, as they say, right? But when we look at Jesus, it's not just hindsight. It's hindsight, present sight, and future sight. Yes. He is the I am. Yes. And he's always been. And the Bible gives us a promise. I just had a kid ask me just the other night. He's like, when we get to heaven, will we know who? Like, my mom always taught me that when we get to heaven, we wouldn't know who our parents, like, we wouldn't be able to recognize people. But the Bible makes a promise that when we inherit the eternal heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, when we are given our glorified bodies, that we will know as we are known. That's a pretty powerful statement. The Bible says that you and I have the mind of Christ. If you're a believer, you have the mind of Christ. His spirit is within you. He's written his law on your heart. You have the mind of Christ. Our problem is that in our natural minds, we only use about 10% of our minds, don't we? That's what scientists say. We only use about 10%. Well, when we get our glorified bodies, we'll be able to use 100% of it. I I honestly believe that Adam, before he fell, was using 100% of his brain. And I think that we're getting more and more brain dead as, as time goes on. 
If yes. you don't believe you come work with some of the generation of the teenagers I'm working with now, and you'll see. Look at that, that you have in your hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right yeah. There, I mean, well, yeah. you know, you don't learn anything, you know, as far as knowing it. It's just, it's in the book there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and in a sense, you're right, because the truth of the matter is, is that um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Yes. And there are actually Christians today that have the whole New Testament around. Right? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you there's a bunch of Muslim folks that can, can recite the whole Quran oh, yeah. by heart. Yeah, like the whole book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're right. We don't use our minds like we used to. We, right. we use these now, these tablets and things. But the truth of the matter is, is that most people don't even read anymore. They just stare at a television screen and let the television screen feed them. Yeah. And, we, and there's something about reading a book. There's something about reading those words. How many of you have a favorite movie that you, a favorite book that you read, and then they made it into a movie, and then you were just like completely saddened, right? It's just not the same. Like you missed the point. You missed it. Right. And so the beauty is that we have God's words, so that that we can know Him. Okay. Next passage there was First um, Timothy one seventeen. What does that say? Now unto the King eternal, immortal, indivisible. Only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. He is eternal, immortal, invisible, most wise. Right. So again, I'm hoping that by reading these Bible verses, you're seeing that these guys did not make this statement up just out of thin air. Like they're literally going to the scriptures and saying, these are the things that the Bible teaches us about who God is. And it helps us to know him and understand him better. All right, next verse there would be, who's got Malachi 3.6? Somebody got that? We skipped Deuteronomy. Did we skip? Deuteronomy, yeah. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 4, 15, and 16. Who's got that? Okay. Why do you think that making statues and images is an abomination in God's eyes? Why does he say, for the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment says, don't make any images or idols. Don't make anything uh, in my, to, to portray me. Why is he so adamant about us not making statues and, and paintings and, and, and things of this nature? False image of who God is. Why? That's that's exactly right. Why does it give us a false image of who God is? So that we don't be on the wrong path. Right. But you remember what we said at the beginning of the lesson today. All heresy, almost every heresy out there, is when we begin to conflate the Creator and the creation. So we're trying to pull Him down and put Him into a box that we can control. You, You see how that works? And so I, I get tickled. I, I love my people at the Savannah Mission down there. That I, I just taught a class there Friday. And they've got some very pretty paintings that they've got up in the, in the room now that we do the classes in. And one of them is a picture of Peter sinking in the boat, you know, in the water and Jesus reaching out to, to pull him up. And it's a pretty picture. And then there's another one over here. And it's the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's Elijah and Moses and Jesus. And uh, James, Peter, and John are all with their heads down. 
and and then there's a big crowd around down below the mountain and it's the the kid getting the demon cast out of him because while they were on the mountain of transfiguration they were casting demons and and there's a there's a a guy sitting over in the corner and he's got a big book open and I get tickled when I think about that because they didn't have books then like there was no such thing as a book and it's like we're inevitably we're going to mess it up like by putting it in painting by putting it in words by uh, not words but by putting in painting by putting in in statues and images you can understand why God is adamant about not us not doing that um, so there is definitely some genuine intent in stained glass windows and religious art like there is genuine intent there that people want people to know the problem with it is that good intentions are not always true intentions like you can bring god down to a level where he's not like we can lose that awe of him and his majesty and who he is because there's no there's no picture or painting even you know da vinci's uh or michelangelo's work on is it michelangelo did the sistine chapel or yeah you know even the finger reaching down and like to, in the in the ceiling like those are beautiful works of art like they really are but they still they still are they're not good they're they're works of human expression but they bring god down to a level where it lessens him so you can understand why God is very adamant with the second commandment. And again, all heresy, almost every heresy out there is conflating the creator and the creation. And that is the purpose of the first two commandments. Your Lord, your God, uh, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. He's the only one God that we worship. And number two, don't make any forms or images or idols or statues or pictures or paintings. All right. So next uh, passage we have there is what? I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why your you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Okay, that's Malachi three six. Okay, I am God, and I do not change. And it is because I do not change that you have not been destroyed. Yes. We often think of God as being this volatile God that gets angry with us when we do something bad. Yes. But the reality is, is that. The Bible uses, let me see if I can say this term properly, anthropomorphic language, right? That's, that's bringing God down to something a man can understand, that God is angry, right? But we're going to learn in this lesson that God is a God of, he, he doesn't have passions. Like, he doesn't get angry and then get happy and then get sad. He's not a roller coaster of emotions like me and you are. He is God and he does not change. And that gives me and you hope because he's not like me and you. Right? I've never been married, but I, w- I would hate to have to like deal with the emotions of, of someone who is constantly in flux. You never know where you stand. Like, am I, am I in good, good, good graces today? Or am I? And, and I'm saying that to be funny, but the reality is, thankfully, we don't have a God that's like that. Right. Amen. Yeah. And that's what he's telling the children of Israel. It's because I am a God that does not change that you have not been destroyed. Yes. Oh, yes. Right? 
And so the whole conversation between Moses and God, when God was like, he had just given them the law and like Moses was up on the mountain and he, and he said, you better go down there. They done messed up. Like it literally hadn't taken any time and they were building stat- and God said, let me destroy him. And then Moses intercedes and says, no, 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 please. If you do that, then the Egyptians are going to see that you're a God that don't keep your promise. You know, and the whole dialogue is not God changing but Moses as intercessor pleading with God. Yes. And so God's, God is consistent and he does not change. And his plan has never altered. It's beautiful to think that he's never been caught by surprise by anything that you've done. Like he's never out there pulling his hair going, what is he doing? He doesn't change. It's we that are volatile. It's we that change. And so that's a, a blessing to know. All right, we can get a couple more passages in here. First uh, Kings 8, 27, what does it say? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. Okay. So he's basically saying to Solomon, he said, you know, I, I'm God. I'm immeasurable. Like, what is that little building? How am I going to fit in there? I created the infinite space around you. And I am in all of it. I am immeasurable. And and that's what he's reminding them of. That that we don't get him into a box. My spirit is in the wind. Yeah. Wherever it goes. So he is immortal, but he is also immeasurable. He is beyond our ability to even speak how big he is. He's immeasurable. Maybe a question for another day is about the Ark of the Covenant and the language about being contained in the Ark. Right. So the temple or the tabernacle, or so that would be the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, That was the Ark was in the furniture in there. God gave... The children of Israel, the command to build the temple, to build the tabernacle. The temple is a reflection of the tabernacle. Okay, so when they built the temple, the temple was a magnified tabernacle. The tabernacle was made out of animal skins. The temple was made out of golden wood and stone. Yes. But when God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he said, you're going to make it according to the pattern the tabernacle was intended to be a place that man, that God would meet with man. It was the meeting place between God and man. So it was not like that he was contained in the ark, yes. but he was present with the ark. And the beauty of that is, is that um, in, our, in our Sunday school, uh, in our sermon today, we're going to see that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You remember that verse in John 1, 14. Well, that word, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, is actually in the, in the Greek languages, the word became flesh and tented with us. So the pattern that the tabernacle and the temple represent is Jesus himself. He was clothed in skin. And, and so the reality is, is that the tabernacle, the temple, and even our churches today are supposed to be reflective of the pattern of 
the meeting place of God. So he is not contained within it, but he dwells there. He can't be contained, but he can come and be present with us. And so if then when you so not only that, but the tabernacle is actually a picture of the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden. What did God do every day in the garden with Adam and Eve? He came and dwelt with them and, and, and was present with them in the garden. And so the tabernacle was a way to point people back to what was lost in paradise. Because what was the tabernacle made out of? Animal skins. Like these animals had to die in order to, to, to provide a place for them to meet. And so it points us back to the beauty of meeting with God in his presence. It points us back to the fall of man. And it points us to the one who would come that would be the true meeting place. And so when you get to the book of the Revelation, what do we learn? In the new heavens and the new earth, what does it say? There is not going to be a temple there. Why? Why is there not going to be a temple in the new heavens and the new earth? God is there, but in, in Revelation it says this, because Jesus is our temple. It's like he's the meeting place. He's where we go to meet with God. And so all of these earthly structures, this tabernacle and this temple, point us to the future reality of the one that would come. You see how that works? So we'll close with that thought. Um, again, if you will this week, if you get a chance, um, if you want to go back through these... Uh, uh, these verses and read on them and meditate on them and apply them to if you notice they have footnote numbers on them so each one of those statements point to the verses that are footnoted and uh, then next week we'll talk about the eight divisions of those attributes we'll find out that God is a singular that he's self-existent he's incomprehensible he's simple he's infinite he's sovereign he's loving and he's just all right, let's close with a word of prayer. And again, I want you to think about these things during the week. I hand these pieces of paper out to you, and I hope that you'll take a few minutes of your time and think about what the Scriptures are teaching us about who God is. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together today. Thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. Thank you that you are a God who loves us and cares about us and that, that you have met with us. And as we'll learn today in our sermon that you are... Uh, uh, Lord, our, our meeting place. You are the word made flesh so that we could uh, worship you, so that we could fellowship with you, so that we can know you, and so that we can love you and glorify you forever. Yes. So be with us now in this coming hour of uh, worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.